Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I am Allie. And I am Boomer. And this is our like kind of post-Halloween wrap-up episode. We're still in like spooky territory here, but we're, we're lightening up a little bit. Uh, I, I don't really know what y'all did for Halloween. Did y'all get to celebrate in any kind of proper rituals on the actual day? Hmm. It was a Monday this year. It kind of makes it less fun than usual. I um, gave out candy and watched for the first time a slumber party massacre the first one yeah which i really really enjoyed i did not know it was uh written by ruby fruit jungle sneaky pie brown mysteries rita may brown had no idea she had written movies um so that's pretty cool yeah written by her and then had all the like sort of overt feminism really distorted by the roger corman machine which was all about the like tits and blood yeah <laughs> so, movies at war with itself yeah it really is i was thinking that the, t- the whole time i was watching it i'm like i can tell that you know there's some feminist ideals behind it and then we've got a lot of boobs and so in the end it just feels gay <laughs> basically it's all these girls talking about how pretty each other is and then undressing in front of each other <laughs> yeah which is great yeah, I, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and the, the phallic imagery of the drill oh, carries oh, yeah. through in a very satirical way. Yes. Honestly, the second one is like one of my favorite horror movies of all time. I was going to say, I've heard the second one is really good, so I'm it's excited. It's so fun. It's like an MTV sugar dream. Like, if you ate too much Halloween candy while watching MTV and passed out and had a nightmare, it would be that movie. Oh, that sounds fun. Uh, Yeah, so... That is what I did Halloween day. I got to see a lot of cute kids in costumes, even though it was pouring rain here. So we didn't get nearly as many trick-or-treaters as we did last year. Yeah, so I had to eat too much candy. Oh, no. Did you throw on a costume for when you were passing out candy? I did, but it was such a slacker costume that I don't (laughs) think anybody would have caught it. I threw on a black dress and a red bow and was Kiki from Kiki's Delivery Service. (laughs) The easiest of costumes in my house. I'm sure you have a sarcastic cat around the house to complete the look. I do, but he's not black, unfortunately. Mm. Siamese was not cast in that movie. (laughs) I uh, live in an area... Well, I live in like a very family-oriented neighborhood, unfortunately. Um... (laughs) But I live in like a an apartment or like a, a building where all of the units are like one bedrooms. So there's no children in this building. And it doesn't really seem like somewhere you would go to trick or treat because we have like a gate, even though I guess I shouldn't say this. It's not locked under it. There's, but you can tell like there's no lock on it. It's it's unlockable. It's, um you know, we it's safe. So I always put out a bowl of full-size candy bars because I don't get to participate, or I, I didn't get to participate in Halloween when I was a kid. I grew up in one of those, like, Halloween is the devil's birthday families. So um, I always like to put out the full-size candy bars because even though I don't like children, I love Halloween. You might be the most popular person among children who does not like children. Yeah, you might. You know, Or the full candy bars. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, like I said, it's high risk but high reward. I don't usually get very many. Right. And since I put out like a bowl, I have no proof that it's not just my neighbors taking it and there's never a whole lot taken. But that's fine too. You might just yeah. be the most popular guy. 
I had to put all of the leftovers other than the Snickers bars away and out of sight. Kat came and she was like, oh, can I have a Snickers bar? I was like, yes, please take one. That's fine. She's like, did you only have these left over? And I was like, no, I just put away everything else so I wouldn't be tempted. She said, oh, so you're not tempted by Snickers. I was like, not at all. I don't know if that's a hot take for candy bars on this podcast, but. (laughs) My big like Halloween candy discovery this year was the Butterfinger Skulls. Oh yeah, you know, they, yeah. Have, they have like the uh, Reese's oh, pumpkins. Interesting. Um, I don't like Butterfingers. <laughs> I think like the way the toffee like sticks to your teeth is like deeply unpleasant. But in their like <laughs> skull shaped version that they only do for Halloween, they like break up the toffee part. Um, so that it, like the peanut butter brittle part, and it's like in these like really digestible chunks mixed in with like a lot more chocolate, and it was like the best candy I had this year. So I'm gonna vouch for those. I didn't go to the grocery store proper. I went to which the grocery outlet for my candy this year. So I guess I was kind of a cheapo, but I didn't nice. add candy. <laughs> Obviously, everybody loves Sour Patch Kids, right? Yes, Sour they Patch do. Kids are so good. Um, yeah. So last year, I found these Skittles, the Shriekers. Do you all did you all know about these? Because they're a lot of fun. Actually. No, man. they're the Skittles that are regular Skittles, but a occasionally one or two of them are like super duper sour like a big surprise it was a lot of fun we kind of like sat around the couch eating them and watching horror movies and being like ah shrieker um it's simultaneously a trick and a treat yeah exactly i love that it's so fun i i haven't seen them since and i wish it was just kind of like a year-round thing and they had like like a skull on them and i'm like yes Kat picked up two very strange kinds of candy uh, this Halloween. There were uh, pumpkin spice Kit Kats. Oh, wow. Which I'm not, I'm not a pumpkin spice person. I never have been. But these were good. They just taste like, you know, nutmeg. They just taste like nutmeg uh, Kit Kats to me. Um, and then also there were these like Sour Patch Kids, but they were stickers. And they came with a powder of sour that you would like dunk the halloween themed shape on the sucker into the sour like dust oh, like a baby bottle pop like or like a fun dip things. but yeah yes those were very cool uh i'm gonna have to not eat candy or sugar for like a month i know after this halloween. <laughs> my skin is very upset at me <laughs> really mad at sugar i've eaten i went to you know a halloween party on friday night which was very fun I went as Dr. Sam Beckett from Quantum Leap, and Kat oh, nice. was uh, Sam, the hologram Dean Stockwell. Uh, from his own time that only he can see and hear. Yeah, which Kat put a lot of work in her costume, and it was really great. She even built herself like a handheld device out of like translucent off-brand Lego brick and put like a string of lights in it and That's got like amazing. a toggle switch so it turned on and off, and she like was really duplicating just like a theoretical one of Dean Stockwell's outfits from the show. Cause you know, it was like made in the eighties, but like set in the nineties. So it's like what the people in the eighties thought people in the nineties would dress like, and it is out of this world. Love it every time. That's her favorite thing about the show. So that was why we did these costumes. And I actually ordered myself a Zentai suit that was all white so that I could do Sam when he's in the Fermi suit, whenever or he gets into the device for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was not going to arrive in time. So I had to like, you know, sort of uh, jerry rig 
something out of like a white workout shirt and like a pair of white sweatpants, which ended up working. But yeah, of course, I was prepared for like the whole night for people to ask us who we were. And I was just going to be like, oh boy, well, theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, <laughs> Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the quantum leap accelerator and disappeared. And then I would explain who I was and who Kat was, and it was going to be fun. And it was, you know, it was a great time. And then Saturday, we actually went out to kind of go around to places and see what was open, you know, and outside and, and wear our costumes again, not just for like among our friend group. And so we ended up at this place where they had like a uh, frozen cocktail. I don't remember what it was. It was sweet and I drank it. And the people behind the bar were watching Basket Case. So we got to talk about Basket Case, which was like the best Halloween gift ever. That's amazing. Yeah, that's pretty good. I was like, you guys know Frankenhooker's on Tubi now, right? Because it is, and I'm going to check it out. I'm going to find the I close love Frankenhooker. That's my I've favorite Animator. It. It's, it's the, the best. only one I haven't seen. So, I mean, don't be disappointed when you exactly disagree with me and it's your least favorite. <laughs> well, you know, wait, what is, the what's your least favorite? Um, I honestly haven't seen enough to have a least favorite. Like, I've seen Basket Case, Brain Damage. Frankenhooker and maybe one other, but I haven't seen like Bad Biology or like sort of the outliers that like might not hit. Okay. But I, I've, I've only had positive Hen and Lauder experiences. I love his like grimy DIY New York style of like goofy horror comedy. Do we disagree about everything? Is that something that people know us for? You don't oh, disagree God. about everything. No. <laughs> I think it's like uh, once we get into the minutiae, like the things that we latch onto are like the opposite ends of like the magnet you know like uh, <laughs> you'll yeah, be like drawn true. to like um a coen brothers movie that i'll be like oh no that's my exact opposite favorite i like this other one i was gonna say we all kind of agreed on uh a hail caesar yeah i, I yeah. just pulled that reference out yeah, of thin air because i, I could think of a, yeah. a topic we did but, pretty yeah. good there was a moment well i guess we'll get to this and, uh, you know, I'll just go ahead and spoil a little bit right now, even though we haven't even started talking about what we've watched yet. But there was a moment where I thought at the end of Gaslight that there was going to maybe be a hint that some one of something had been supernatural all along and it had been her aunt, you know, like when <laughs> we watched um, Diabolique. And I was like, oh, we're going to have to fight about this because I don't think that anything supernatural is going on. And then when there wasn't, I was very happy. <laughs> I don't think there is, but I do think it is a ghost story. I agree. Yeah. Okay, good. It's a ghost story okay. where the ghosts aren't are, are people. <laughs> I agree real, with that. But yeah. Here's here's the problem with this uh, situation that we got here. We agree too much, maybe. Like, <laughs> the most famous... Film critics of all time are famous because they fucking hated each other's guts. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, uh, we're pretty funny about batting insults back and forth between their disagreements. So I got to come up with something to like violently disagree with you on this episode to keep this entertaining. I think I'll just bring up Prometheus every chance I get. <laughs> That's the uh, emergency eject I'll button. I'll just be here stoking well. the fire. Don't mind me <laughs> throwing some, some coals on. Hey, but remember about Prometheus? Alien is a much better example than Coen Brothers. It is, like, yeah. Like that that kind of franchise, there are ones that I'll gravitate towards that you won't. Yeah, we could about. not be in more opposition. <laughs> right. <laughs> Except that we all love Alien best. Yeah. Right. But generally, we both like Alien as a franchise, I think. Yeah. 
like on a broad scope. It's just once you get in the minutia, that's when we start quibbling. Mm-hmm. Quibbling is good for business, is all yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, quibbling I guess is that's really true. good for business. <laughs> Brandon, what did you do for Halloween? Uh, I have lost the war with trick-or-treaters. Like, I get maybe two to five a year if I sit on the porch uh. all night. And I'm just sitting there thinking, like, I could be watching a horror movie inside right now yeah. instead of waiting for people to come get this candy. Um, so this year, CeCe's out of town. I just took the bus to the quarter the bus and the streetcar and on the way i noticed the neighborhood that all the kids are going to like even the ones we would get would be in a car pulling over on their way to another location mm-hmm. like spotting us and they all go to like the nice neighborhood off of oh, yeah. so i'm not going to compete anymore i'm done but the freeing part of that was that i didn't have to think about children that could be selfish mm-hmm. this year and i went to the quarter and did like you know, the kind of, like, dress-up Halloween experience I haven't done in probably a decade. Um, I expected it to be a lot of, like, college-age people getting way too drunk and trying to hook up in um, disastrous form. And apparently, that is mostly, like, the Saturday before. And it was more, like, traditionalist, like-minded people the night we were out. By which I mean people in their, like, 30s to 60s. Halloween um, night proper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Monday night. In the quarter, the true believers are out there. <laughs> um, I had a, a teddy bear mask on that I think straddled the line between cute and scary, good, good. depending on how you wanted to look at it. And I guess the most blissful moment of the night was at the R bar. They were playing a Jalo movie I'd never seen before on silent and then really obnoxious dance music, very loud. Ooh, that's the best way. You yeah. just invented yeah. knife and heart. <laughs> we were literally dancing and watching Jalo at the same time. Which, a combo I've never done before, and a unique novelty that I very much enjoyed and would repeat if offered. That's (laughs) knife and heart, baby. Yeah. That's all it is. (laughs) And now I have uh, another movie on my watch list. Uh, I think it was um, Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion was what they were playing, which took us a little while to Google without proper clues. But has anyone sat down to watch a movie (laughs) since the last time we talked with the sound on? So the last horror that I was able to fit in before Halloween, um, I believe that we talked on this podcast about how my friend had gone to the bar and seen, uh, wow, this was actually a segue that we could have done. And I just like blitzed it. He went to the bar and there were two horror movies on, on two separate TV screens. And he described them to me and he was like, I was like, oh yeah, we can watch those. That's Death Becomes Her and Creep Show. And specifically he was citing The Raft uh segment and oh, so and we watched creep, creep show, show. Too. yeah we watched a creep show like uh back at the like end of august after he mentioned it for the first time and i was finally like okay let's watch creep show too so we did and you know what i know that people talk about what an inferior product it is but i still really like it yeah it's fun all i ever hear is people talk about the raft not necessarily like the rest of the movie but the hitchhiker well it is the middle segment and it is I, I guess the least I wouldn't necessarily even call it the best segment, although it probably yeah, is. Yeah, it, it's super ridiculous, but also incredible. Yeah. The the first segment is um oh it just left my mind. Oh, it's about a cigar store Indian that comes to life and avenges like this very elderly couple who have run this like general store in this dying town and let all of these like you know, people who are living in poverty 
basically take whatever they needed on credit, knowing that they would never be able to pay it back just out of generosity. And like, they have this love for this like dying town that, you know, was their home for so many years. And then this guy who's really obsessed with his hair comes through. Um, he lives there. His father is like the local Native American like leader who has, you know, had these interactions with the couple who run the general store that demonstrates like a very deep mutual respect on both sides. And it's, you know, based on a Stephen King short story that, you know, has that as an element as well. But the guy comes through, they're going to rob the place. He thinks he's going to go out to Hollywood and get like a really great job with his long, sleek hair. And over the course of just trying to commit a robbery ends up killing them both. And the sort of wooden carved, you know, cigar store Indian, as they're known, outside comes to life and then kills those kids who did Whoa. it. And it's actually really impressive. The like actual suit that it's walking around in, it looks really good. Yeah. You can tell a lot of the budget went into that. And if you know that it's coming, you can kind of notice that it's never quite still. Like if you've, seen the segment before and you're watching it you notice that every time they somebody goes up to what is supposed to be like a carved block of wood there's a little bit of motion like there's a person who's always in there which is really interesting and it's george kennedy who is the store owner and that makes it a little bit more sympathetic because you know you may not recognize the name but when you see him you're like oh that guy i have sentiment for him yeah and then there's the raft which you know it's very effective i think i think it's the most effective one. Oh yeah i mean it's so it's so silly that it's so effective because the monster is just so ridiculous looking yeah it really is it's just like some trash yeah, bags under the exactly. water which you know is horrifying but in a different way than right. they're going for it's, <laughs> yeah it's like a very tiny pacific garbage patch yeah. is like you know torturing these teenagers like a baby hedora yeah basically yeah kind of and you know there are parts of it that are goofy because creep show is goofy yeah. like inherently you know that uh one person eventually does make it to shore but instead of like i don't know getting 10 or 15 feet from the shore he like stops as soon as he's on dry land and is like taunting it and of course it like comes in a wave and sweeps him under it's also like the the way that the people are digested by the thing is really horrifying yeah. where they're clearly in pain and alive still and that this goes on for a while is pretty it's pretty awful to watch you know and what is a a movie with like kind of some levity throughout uh cuz it like i said it's creep show it's really effective in its like demonstration of the harrowing deaths that these people experience and unlike uh, Creepshow the first, this one only has three segments. The third and final segment is the Hitchhiker segment, which, Ali, that seemed like that was the one that you thought of first when thinking about Creepshow 2. Well, it's the raft and the Hitchhiker. I always forget about the, the first one for some reason, but the Hitchhiker is ridiculous and also be effective, in my opinion. It reminds me of yeah. a very specific episode of The Twilight Zone, which you probably know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is also called the hitchhiker. I, I believe. believe so as well. Yes. Of course, in that one, this this woman, you know, she is trying to get home before her husband, because if she doesn't, then you know, uh, he's going to know that she's been cheating on him with this like 
young man who is who is a sex worker and she accidentally it's a hitchhiker she's in her very fancy automobile that her husband's wealth pays for um and she's like talking to herself about like oh what am i going to tell him you know she's psyching herself up and she drops her cigarette and of course she swerves off of like the highway she hits and you know strikes and uh kills a hitchhiker who is bound for dover and then it haunts her because she flees the scene for her whole way home and there when i say the whole way home there are long periods of this movie where she's just driving through like a forest like there's so much wooded driving in this movie it's pretty great so eventually she you know uh, she's like oh i'm i'm going to take charge and she like smashes this spectral hitchhiker to a pulp between her car and a tree and then drives home and then he's still there you know, saying thanks for the ride, thanks lady. For the which ride, is all lady. He ever says, which kind of <laughs> it it starts out creepy and then becomes funny and then becomes scary again. That sounds like a perfectly balanced creep show segment. Yeah, we would be remiss if we did not mention Allie that Tom Wright, the actor who plays the hitchhiker, uh, also appeared in Star Trek Voyager. Yes, yes. he played Tuvix in the literally infamous episode of Star Trek Voyager. Uh, yeah, Tuvix. Oh, so many feels about that episode, but this is not a Voyager podcast. Yeah, whenever <laughs> we do Swamp Trek again, topic number one, Tuvix. But we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Yeah. Um, Brandon, if you want to watch Creepshow 2, it is on Tubi. Everything's on Tubi. Everything, Everything is there. Worth um, noting worth noting of a movie is not on Tubi at this point, right? Yeah. And <laughs> you believe it? As it turns out, the next thing that I was going to say I watched, the only other thing I watched other than our, you know, primary topic was uh the 2001 film Valentine also on nice. Tubi. I turned on my TV and it was like, you haven't logged into Tubi lately, but these things are still on your list. I was like, "Oh yeah. <laughs> Valentine." Um, I wrote pretty exhaustively about Valentine over the course of the past 24 hours. I started writing about it last night, had to stop, woke up in the morning, refreshed, set pen to paper again. Um, and I guess we were talking about it briefly off mic earlier, but I ended up giving it a two-star review because I think that it is not a great movie solely because of how much is missing from it and like you know, the things that are missing from it, it's like when a cartoon character runs through a wall and there's like a hole where you can see like the shape of it. Like there's there's whole scenes missing from that movie where you can actually see the shape that it left behind. And for me, it was, I wanted it to be so, I, I thought it had so much potential. But Brandon, you were saying that you saw it years ago and you loved it. Yeah, Brittany made me watch it for the podcast, I want to say like five years ago. And I didn't expect much from it. I was like, surely I've seen all of these like urban legend era like scream sub variants. <laughs> like I surely I've like gotten through all the good ones. And I, I had never even heard of Valentine, so I was like, this must be really bad. <laughs> and it really, I don't know, surprised me. It it plays kind of like a rom com starring Denise Richards for long stretches of it, and then it becomes violent in like kind of these abrupt slasher ways like it feels like it's marketed for college age women in a way that those movies usually aren't yeah even though scream and scream 2 are both like also for that audience but they're not marketed that way right or they're at least inclusive of that audience and 
the, the thing that surprised me too was like at the beginning it was like all these women mistreated this boy you know in that like prom night kind of like slasher tradition like you know if they hadn't bullied him none of them would have been killed um and i thought the movie was going to take like his side in this like kind of men's rights activist kind of way but like all the men in that movie are like perfectly awful in a way that the movie's like aware of <laughs> they're so terrible every single every one. single one of them and i just really liked that like men are trash women love to have fun <laughs> appeal for like that style of movie cuz you know a lot of those movies after scream were like more misogynistic than scream was like it, it kind of like devolved into this sort of like macho point of view that I felt like Valentine was a counterpoint to. Plus, the Cupid mask that the killer wears is actually scary. It reminds me a lot of the doll in um, Profundo Rosso. I buy that. Yeah, the creepy automaton. It has a very similar like facial structure. Or the um, baby mask in Happy Death Day was what I was thinking at the time too. Which is another oh, yeah. like sugary kind of femme take on the genre too. Yeah, when you said the baby mask, for some reason I thought you were going to mention sugar and spice, but it's also kind of that <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, that too. Yeah, which is another very girly movie. Yeah, this one had like a rom com feel to it to me. I don't, I don't know if it was just like the Valentines they kept getting, or like them like blowing off all these like dumb guys on their like speed dates and stuff. Like, hmm, okay. I'm looking at it from that point of view, and I'm, I'm not saying I, I'm saying I don't not see it. it doesn't feel like that to me it feels just like sort of scream done badly and then they hacked out 10 (laughs) minutes of it (laughs) or like scream done really well actually and then 10 minutes are hacked out of it and it's all of the scenes that would make certain things make sense like here's here's one of the things that i mentioned is that like scream we spend a large portion of the back half of that first one just at this house party right but there are scenes that are set like in the van, in the garage, you know, they go, Gail and Dewey take like a walk and they find a car. You don't spend the whole half of the movie when the party is taking place at the house where the party is taking place. But in Valentine, you do. And not only that, but like right before it, the last two scenes before the party are also set in that same place. And it just makes it feel really monotonous in the back half to me in a way that I was like kind of surprised by, especially because like there should be a scene between the scene where Cameron is killed and the party. But it cuts just from that to the party instead of doing another scene that would like effectively plant another red herring before the party. Because there are a lot of men in this who show up twice. And I think that that was the most frustrating thing for me is that somebody shows up in act one and then they show up in act three. But there's no indication in act two that maybe they're up to no good. There's there's one in particular who's just like the guy from the speed dating event who can't even say anything and just giggles he shows up again at the end of the party and it feels like there should be like when they go to the art exhibit or something he should be in the background there too and it just feels like large chunks are missing and there's something that just kind of feels wrong about it because of it to me the art exhibit is actually a great point for me of like what i like about slashers which is like the logical stuff <laughs> especially the cheaper you get like it really falls apart and it, it just ends up being an excuse for like certain scenes and like that art exhibit 
A, it's funny because everyone in the movie agrees that it's bad art. Yeah, even <laughs> like, the police detective. Who... Yeah, no one is into the art. But, like, <laughs> visually for us, it's like a cool backdrop just for, like, stuff to happen during. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is, like, kind of a slasher tradition. It's like the logic gets very loose the cheaper you get down the totem pole, you know? There's so many of the kills in this one are really distinct. That kill for Denise Richards, it's one of the best I've ever seen, honestly. It deserves, you know, it deserves a place in the pantheon. But because it's in this movie that was so panned, nobody ever talks or thinks about it. That's the stuff that matters to me, is like yeah. that kind of moment. And they're they're very brief. And I, I also mentioned this in the review, but like, you know, the death scene for the woman who's killed at the art exhibit, the one who <laughs> was one of the worst as far as bullying goes, like, you know, Denise Richards is like, oh, you remember Jeremy Melton? And she says, who? She doesn't remember the dance where he got, like, attacked. And then as soon as she does remember him, she does like, oh, yeah, with the buck teeth. <laughs> Will you dance with me? Like, it's she's such a beanie. Yeah. It's pretty great. But her death scene is only 30 seconds long, which is like, she doesn't fight back very much. And I think that that was one of the things that was present in Scream that was missing from this is like, in Scream, it feels so much more visceral because there are people who are like literally struggling for their lives a lot. And it seems very real. Whereas in this one, a lot of people just like go to their fates willingly without a lot of struggle, which made it feel very strange to me. Um, and it doesn't, there's less tension because it, the scenes are shorter and they don't effectively utilize the non murder scenes to create tension in the way that like I wish it did. Yeah. Um, my last thought on it, I couldn't find a place to put this in the 4,500 words or the 4,200 words that I wrote about it, but seeing David Boreanaz in casual clothing is very strange to me. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a point in this movie where David Boreanaz is wearing like a crew neck tee with a front, like a, like a breast pocket. You know, like the kind of Hanes one that was so popular in the 90s. You know, you would go to Walmart and you could get a pack of them for like eight bucks. And you had like a half week's of a worth of a wardrobe. That's what he's wearing in this movie. And I could not believe it. Uh, there's a point where I, I, I never, I don't think I was ever meant to see him in shirt, like short sleeves. I think he <laughs> should only ever be fully in his robes or shirtless or doing tai chi in a muscle shirt those are like the only three acceptable outfits for david boreanaz Not like in a in my suit mind, so. as healy booth and bones look i wanted to make a joke about that in the review is that maybe that is actually probably why he's more of a household name i could not i could not accept that that show ran for 12 seasons yeah it, it boggled my mind it ran way too long and i have seen way too much of it i have no words i can't like I can't believe, not you, but like, I can't, like the fact that Supernatural ran like 13 seasons has always been mm -hmm. like a mind blow to me, but like, there's so much less to do with both. It really <laughs> they is. They went almost as long. Huh. But um, I guess to you, Brandon, what have you been watching? Uh, well, it sounds like y'all have a lot of like Halloween hangover. Like there's still a very horror oriented list of movies. Um, I've had a much harsher crash back to reality post halloween here um it's new orleans film fest right now so i'm watching a lot of like super low budget artsy movies that most likely will not make it past the festival circuit at all and i've been to the theater a few times besides the festival and it's to see 
you know, awards season dramas. The two big ones that are out right now that I've seen are, I can tell it's award season because I had the exact opposite reaction to them than the consensus, which is that I really did not like Tar. I thought it was pretty vapid and just looked like a Lexus car commercial. It had like the look of elegance, but wasn't like much of anything. And then I really liked Triangle of Sadness, which has been um, sort of a punching bag for film Twitter for being like a very on the surface blunt comedy without much to say. Oh, I've been looking forward to that one. I really like it, <laughs> but I don't even know if I disagree with the consensus in that I don't think it's like nuanced or subtle in any way, but I don't think it has to be. And it, in fact, the things that were like nuanced and subtle about Tar, I thought were very tiresome. And there was something very cathartic about the way that Triangle of Sadness, in comparison, was just very out in the open about its satirical targets, and it went at them very hard and for a long period of time, and it made me laugh a lot, uh, which I thought was a very nice um, counterbalance to that, uh, what I was disappointed in with the other film. Um, I never saw The Square, but I feel like that one got a lot of similar blowback for being like too obvious in its really? satire. Hmm. And I know you really liked it, I did, and I don't remember that, but also I wouldn't be surprised by it. I don't understand what people want, really. Like, I don't need to, like, solve a movie like a puzzle if it's, like, out in the open about what it's talking about, but it actually, like, commits to the bit in a way that's, like, intense or interesting, then I'm fine. Like, I don't need to, like, have to puzzle at what the themes might be and put it together, this, like, cryptic code. Like, yeah, not everything has to be a puzzle box. It's not bad that things are, but not everything right. has to be. So Triangle of Sadness is R Ruben Oslin's new film, and it's set on a super yacht. Like, it's set on, like, a luxury yacht for, like, the most wealthy people in the world, and the movie's just about how fucking terrible they are, and then it shames them and demoralizes them to the point where they're rolling around on the yacht as it's basically sinking um, in their own puke because the... Uh, the sea waves are making them sick and they've just eaten like oysters and caviar. So they have nothing solid in their stomachs. So they're rolling around as the yacht throttles back and forth um, in their own puke. <laughs> and a drunk Woody Harrelson is reading Karl Marx quotes over the loudspeaker <laughs> um, to torment them further. And it's so funny. That visual gag is stretched out to such an absurd length and just keeps going and going and going that I just found it very cathartically amusing. And the movie's just kind of like that. It's like, it's not, its themes are not hidden. It's not cryptic. It's very out in the open. The um, choice of satirical target is very obvious and agreeable. And um, that doesn't really matter because the <laughs> jokes are funny and it's fun to laugh. <laughs> I don't know what else people want. Uh, so I would recommend it. I don't know. It's, it's a movie in three parts. It has kind of like an art house prestigiousness to it. Because um, it has that triptych structure and like Oslin in general. He started off with Force Majeure, had more of a um, Michael Haneke style like cruelty to it. I feel like he's gotten more into like this like John Waters absurdity with this one. Like it, it's it's more cartoonish in a way that really spoke to me and reinvigorated my need to see the square. If it weren't three hours long, I probably would have seen it sooner. Uh, but uh, I, I need to, I still need to catch up with it now. It's great. What else are you doing? Living your life? <laughs> <laughs> and besides that, I got a movie from the library, which I guess if it has any awards ambitions is for um, old people to vote for at the Oscars for best costume design. Was it Downton Abbey 2? 
It was Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Oh, the remake. Oh, I also watched the original starring Angel Lansbury. Did you? I almost watched that yesterday. Damn it. It's uh, on YouTube. We have to get together on this. I I actually, I have a digital copy of Through Legal Means. But I was like, hmm. I was left a little unsatisfied by the amount of Angela in Gaslight, although what there is is great. Uh, uh, I guess, again, we're talking about Gaslight. Well, we should start the second segment with being like, I know we played really mysterious about what the movie was going to be and didn't (laughs) add on at all. Nobody was talking about it. It's Gaslight. (laughs) I gotta say, I didn't know much about Angel Lansbury besides like this like nice character that she plays in a lot of stuff like just super sweet and after gaslight i, I saw more gumption she's in got her so and much like, gumption uh, more sass oh, yeah. than i was used to there's some real sass in murder she wrote there is some real sass in murder she wrote but also like that murder she wrote was sort of a late part of her career where that was the case she mostly played characters like this before that Right, and I I didn't know that, and I, I didn't yeah. know about her like stage work doing like Sweeney Todd and stuff. Like I, I I didn't see her doing that more Cockney accent. And the thing about her Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, or her hers is Mrs. Harris. Mrs. Like, Harris goes to Paris. Right? Yeah. The thing about that is that she gets to play the character with some grit like that. Like both versions of the novel are like this working class British woman goes to Paris to get a dress and like all the snooty Paris people don't want her to um, sully the name of their couture house by having one of their gowns modeled by a chamberwoman. Um, but the Leslie Manville version that came out this year, I think is a much better movie and I, I very much enjoyed it. And I cried at the end when she got the dress she wanted, which I guess is what the movie was made for. But like, I'm used to Leslie Manville playing really mean people, like on Harlots and in Phantom Thread. She's like an ice queen in both of those things. And Angela Lansbury actually got to be a much grittier Mrs. Harris. Like she could drink the Leslie Manville character under the table, um, even though she's in a movie that doesn't have any teeth. Like she's in the made for TV version that isn't as like politically aware. The new one is about like, labor organization and like um not being a doormat for people and like standing up for yourself the 90s one she's actually just nice and that's her whole character but there's still like a that little like gaslight edge to her that like i I just never saw before i am envious that you have seen this and now i have to watch it (laughs) as soon as we finish recording tonight i don't think it's like a great movie to be honest I thought the two of them were more interesting in comparison. I, I thought the newer one was a better movie, but like, I don't know. Being babysat by Angela Lansbury for 90 minutes was pleasant. <laughs> Isn't it just? Uh, so I have been watching Murder, She Wrote for many months now. And, and you know, I have been like you know, watching them over and I got to the point in the series in like, season five six and seven where there are a lot of what the fans call bookend episodes um which are episodes that she's not in as much and cat watched the show before me and when she was going through it and telling me about it i sort of assumed that this was during the period when she was like i don't know working on beauty and the beast and maybe wasn't around as much but that timeline doesn't actually add up the way that i thought it did so i guess You know, it was a pretty grueling schedule. And even though it was the 80s, she was already a very old woman. 
So I understand that like, you know, it probably was a grueling schedule for her and they gave her, you know, these episodes off so that she got breaks. Sometimes she shows up and she's like, oh, I've received a letter. And there are like nine of these episodes that are from, or I guess eight episodes that are told from the perspective of like an insurance investigator friend of hers. Like he's introduced in an earlier episode and then many of the episodes are about him or she's reading a story or she's, you know, oh, here's the plot of my latest novel. And I went through and watched all of those in a go so I could get them out of the way and then just go back and watch the episodes with Angela because that was what I really wanted. But also I'm a completionist at heart. And it really depressed me because, <laughs> you know, we just lost her. And also it's, like this peek into this alternate world where everything has like the trappings of the setting in which Angela Lansbury is supposed to be, but she is not, which makes it feel creepy and sad because it's like you're watching an episode of Murder, She Wrote, and you're just, she's just gone, just like she is now, not to be like, oh, I'm having a parasocial relationship with, with a movie star. But, you know, it's true. And it made me very uh, sad. But then I finished those and started watching the episodes that she is in again. And it's great again. I just feel like I've been seeing, as she's being memorialized, like more shades to her than I ever have before. Like the anecdote of John Waters running into her at a sex club or like these like Cockney accented roles where like, I, I don't know, I was picturing her doing the teapot as a cockney <laughs> you know brat i was gonna say right. there's this episode of murder she wrote where she like plays her cousin that looks exactly like her it's like a cockney like cabaret singer she sings a song that angela sang in a movie yeah. um, there were many years where she was in musicals but they did not use her actual vo voice yeah because uh, they thought that it was abrasive and one of the only times she ever got to sing for herself was wouldn't you like to spoon with me? And it's great. And she does it as her like cockney cousin. Which is why I get upset about people hating on the original cast recording of Sweeney Todd. Like I'm not a musical person, but I love Angela Lansbury's character in that because it actually adds character to it. Not just perfect musical person voice. I was already already found her endearing before this stuff. Like I remember like the day they announced that she died and I was just kind of watching local news while I was eating my dinner and then it bled into entertainment tonight and they played like a 30 second clip of her just talking on a set and I started tearing up and like crying even though I have no real close emotional connection to her just because she seemed like a very genuinely kind and talented person and even so <laughs> even with that like base level of like adoration for her i uh i still feel like i'm a bigger fan now than i was a week ago just like seeing more sides to her than i have before yeah i don't know that it's enough to convince me to watch ten thousand hours of murder she wrote but there's there's not that no, there's many not it, that it many. is 12 seasons though just like those <laughs> You will please not refer to your mistress as she. It's going to work on your tunes again tonight. You're always working, aren't you? Yes. What are you doing with your evening out? 
Oh, I'm going to a musical. Up and up, balloon boys. Up and up. I've never been to an English musical. Oh, you don't know what you've missed, sir. Up and up, balloon boys. Up and up, balloon. You like it a lot, sir. Well, we must see about that. And whom are you going to the musical with? Gentlemen friends, sir. Oh, now you know, Nancy, don't you? That gentlemen friends are sometimes inclined to take liberties with young ladies. Oh, no, sir. Not with me. I can take care of myself when I want to. You know, Nancy, it strikes me that you're not at all the kind of girl that your mister should have for a housemaid. No, sir. She's not the only one in the house, is she? Now, we have all been mourning the passage of the greatest queen in British history recently, the death of Angela Lansbury. And some of us have turned to continuing to watch Murder, She Wrote. Some are experiencing her for the first time, and others are rediscovering an old passion. And in order for us to participate in that, or at least, you know, uh, turn that into something that we could all discuss, I suggested that we all watch the 1944 film Gaslight, uh, in which she plays a small, minor role. Y'all have heard about Gaslight before, right? I mean, it is oh. a daily vocabulary word, uh, and I knew that it came from a movie called Gaslight, but... Um... No, you didn't. I was going to say, Brandon, we know how you are. Whoa! No, you didn't. Whoa. We know how you are with terms, Brandon. It's okay. <laughs> I am very forgetful. Yes, and of course you had never heard of Gaslighting before this movie. I'm getting very flustered right now. <laughs> well, sorry, we yeah, won't. We'll stop. We'll, we'll stop. stop. We, we're not trying to bully yeah, you. We're, like, we're going to stop doing that. Gaslight was a play that then became a film, and then four years later became another film, which is the one that everybody knows with Ingrid Bergman and Joseph Cotton. She plays the niece of an opera singer who is murdered for her jewels, which is a, a secret that is kept from the public. She goes away for several years to try and become an opera singer herself for which she is not suited by the standards of the period. She meets a man who sweeps her off her feet, proposes to her, and they move back to uh, her childhood home, which was formerly the home of her aunt and where she was raised. And her husband, you know, in order to supposedly help her get over her horrible memories of that night, moves everything that is in the house into the attic and boards it up. And then slowly over time, um, it's kind of hard to describe what he does in this movie without just saying gaslighting, because that's, <laughs> that's what it is. He gaslights It's where her. we get the term. I feel like that's like just the start yeah, of it. Yeah, it is it's just like, the start of it. I, I expected, you know, him to gaslight her, to like convince her that she was losing her mind, even though she's not. Um, specifically playing with the, the literal gaslights gas in the room. Is, is the thing. But he kind of like spells out the entire like abuser's playbook here like isolating her you know mm -hmm. scaring away company you know calling her hysterical and all this stuff like it is like the full abusive spectrum um in a way that's like very self-aware of like what that yeah. abuse looks like creating a situation in which she will experience joy and then taking away it away from her, from her. Yeah. exactly it's awful i was so upset by this and it's not really a surprise that it like entered the public lexicon in the way that it did at the time and of course has reemerged now because of um the hellscape it's really interesting to me to have a movie where all of the psychological abuse things are present and obviously you watch them and you're like this guy is wrong it also so many people for so long to not acknowledge that 
psychological abuse is even a thing? I don't know. It's interesting, like, because it kind of feels in that way, like this movie and the play are maybe a little bit ahead of their time in some ways. But in other ways, it's like anybody who's experienced it knows. At the very least, it's like confirmation that that is nothing like new. Yeah. Like people falling into yeah. this dynamic, like the actual like power exchanges in that dynamic has not changed at all. Like it's exactly the same now as it was, you know, 80 years ago. I kind of wonder what the audience at the time was supposed to initially suspect was going on. Because, Brendan, you said that it is a ghost story, and it definitely is that. It has a very gothic ghost Mm -hmm. story feeling for a lot of the runtime, even after it becomes clear as an audience member that, like, he's lying to her. It's still sort of... Uh, to me, trying to watch it as if I didn't know what gaslighting was to gaslight myself into not knowing that, I was like, oh, if I'm watching this for the first time, I'm assuming that the house is haunted by the ghost of her dead aunt. That she's moving things around, that she's moving around in the attic where all of her possessions are, that her comings and goings are affecting the lights. And it's impossible to not know now. It's impossible to watch it not knowing that the husband is the villain mm-hmm. in, in right. the modern context. So, like, it worked as a ghost story for me because she is haunted by her aunt. And also, she is also the ghost of her aunt in that other people see her and are like, uh, oh, my yeah. God, she's still alive. She was definitely murdered. Yeah. Um, so it still does that, which is kind of like the Diabolique thing that you referenced earlier, where it's like, it's kind of playing both sides. It is like a very material world noir melodrama, but also the trappings of a gothic ghost story at the same time. It works. It works for me. You know, this was one of those like classic greats that I had always been embarrassed that I'd never actually gotten around to seeing. And so I'm glad that I finally have. I did many years ago tape off of Turner Classic Movies onto a VHS tape twice, like two separate VHS tapes, which I discovered while going through my VHS recently and laughed at. Like I had, I thought it was very funny that I had gaslit myself into thinking that I had already <laughs> recorded it off of Turner Classic Movies, but I'd also never gotten around to watching it, even though I recorded it. So I'm glad that we're here. First time I saw this movie, I yeah was horrified by like the dude this guy this fucking guy this weasel and, uh i loved it especially i don't know because ingrid bergman she just has this like i don't know this pure like innocent angel face going on and it's very like vaseline on the lenses like whenever she's present and yeah. it's like why would you do this to her? <laughs> it's also really satisfying when she gets jokerified in the last like yes, scene. Yes. Where she's Such like a uh, she tries to gaslight him in 90 seconds. <laughs> Such a good payoff. Oh, I yeah. love that scene so much. I honestly was horrified by this in a way that I didn't expect to be. Um I didn't know watching it before Halloween if it was like horror enough to like count on my like Halloween season horror tallies. And then the very first scene is a there's like a shot of a newspaper that says Strangler still at large. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess this is a horror movie. Um and then, you know, the murder mystery stuff started happening and there's that very pointed discussion about the missing glove. I was like, okay, they're going to find the glove on him at the end and that's going to be like the big indication that he was like the killer the whole time. Like I could kind of see the roadmap of where the movie was going 
very early on. What I did not expect was that it's so obvious it's him the whole time. I don't think it's really trying to hide it. Yeah, I was surprised by how quickly it reveals its hand. Oh, yeah. Like, as soon as she finds the letter, they're like, nope. And it's still incredibly effective because he's such an asshole. Yeah. He's such a monster that, like, the whole time you you know what he's doing. We all know this abuser's playbook. We're watching him play the most, like, down-the-middle version of it. And it's still really effective to the point where I felt super uncomfortable having to sit through it. Like, especially when he's, like, parading the help through the room to, like, humiliate her. Oh, my God. It's My blood was, like, ice cold. This is, like, one of the scariest movies I watched all October, uh, which I did not know going in that there was going to be more to it than just, like, the mystery of the plot, you know? Like, there's no real mystery here. We know who the monster is, and it's really tough to have to sit there with him um, because he's your only company. It's more of, like, trying to watch and see, like, will anyone help this poor woman? Will she get out? Like, how is she going to get out? Like, is she just going to be fated to go to an institution? Like, so many women of the time, you know, were, if their husbands kind of just decided to be tired of them. She was on her way. It's really sickening the way that he like prevents her from doing anything and makes her. It's really effective the scene where she wants to put a coal on the fire mm-hmm. and he forces her to ring for uh, oh. Sally and then like is dismissive of like oh she rung you to put coal fire. on the fire. Yeah. It's a really great example of the way that like someone who is obviously evil is also really capable of like editing Mm -hmm. and uh, curating the image that they present to the world. And that's a huge part of the gaslighting because something that, you know, I guess we don't really think about is that like the actual gaslight from which the title takes its name is a side effect. That's not one of the things that he's doing intentionally. That's just him turning on the light in the attic and gas going down and nobody knows why. Yeah, And so the rest of it is all very intentional and very calculated and frequently cruel, but like they're all part of the same like systemic abuse or system of abuse of her. I mean, you know, there's no wonder like abusers can be extremely charming, obviously, as he like tries to flirt and like there's up fancy in her like (laughs) little lucky... working class girl thing she's got going on oh my god i love her so much in this movie she's 17 i know it's unbelievable I know. she's a child in this this movie. is her first yeah. movie right yeah that's incredible she steals the couple scenes that she's in especially i mean when he's hitting on her in front of his oh wife god. that's like uncomfortable and she kind of doesn't respond much but then when he hits on her in private later, she like really eats up that scene and like is like I can take care of myself if I want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. you know, like she gets really flirty and like saucy in this like subtle way. And I don't know, I just liked seeing her as a sassy brat cuz like I said I'm I'm so used to her playing like a kindly grandmother character cuz she was old like my entire life, you know. Right. <laughs> it was like I don't know, it's just interesting seeing this like flirty bratty side yeah. of her. It's so good. Like this movie you look forward to her scenes because you're just like, this is such a great, ridiculous character, even though you're like upset at her for playing into his hands. But she's young and manipulative. I also really liked the uh, side character she would have played if um, she were the age 
to play the old oh, yeah. bitty. Oh, every single time that woman was on screen, I was like, she's reading a book on public transportation and she's overreacting to it. It's me. She can't <laughs> hide her delight at trying to get into this building to find out about the murders. It's yes, me. I was like, oh my God, this is Boomer. Boomer is a bloodthirsty Bessie. <laughs> <laughs> Just overexcited, explaining the plot of Bluebeard, I believe, to the, uh, the other passenger. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big book for it to all be a Bluebeard story and for her to only be <laughs> two-thirds of the way through. She's like, I'm only on page 200. I'm like, girl, is this a book of short stories? <laughs> and if so, are you confused about how they work? She was pretty old. Maybe it was like large print. Yeah. So like, you know, three words a page. Large print then? I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. I do like that uh, she... The, the joke was very funny to me that she was such a gore hound and was really into like grisly murder stuff but like any sexual impropriety she was like well i never <laughs> like any like uh dalliances outside of marriage that's like, me <laughs> no, just, <laughs> come on come on <laughs> no i'm i'm just kidding bloodthirsty bessie is a gore hound and a total freak i love her i do she's love her. welcome Very funny. here at swamp Lake. she's on the train <laughs> she's eating her dicky biscuits <laughs> and having a high old time and just like lurking, just waiting for the moment that she can get into this murder house and get her grubby little eyes on every single I think, detail. And I love you know, it. It's interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people think that uh, true crime as such an is a recent thing, but it's not. And just love this movie because it's like, oh, that's so many of us. So many. That's just such a natural human like curiosity to be like, I want to see the inside of that murder house. Show me the murder house. Yes. Do you think Angela Lansbury would have killed that role, too, in a different time? Oh, <laughs> oh God, absolutely. yes. Yeah, it seemed like a template for what she would do later, you know? Kind of, to be honest, I have a feeling that when I, I do watch the 1978 Death on the Nile, that that is going to be her character. I have a feeling. Right, right. <laughs> Finally, I get to play what I was uh, made for. Yes. <laughs> I just had an agent do it. I don't know. Overall, this was like a classic film for me. I It's one of those movies where, like, it's so part of the lexicon that I felt like I knew everything about it going in and that did nothing to take away from the power of it, which is like the best kind of movie. Yes. Like the whole time yeah. I was just like electrically involved with like the drama of the scene and in a way that was like chilling, um, which was perfect, like Halloween season viewing. And it, it maintained a spooky atmosphere, even without actual supernatural events. Like, the, the movies it was most reminding me of besides Diabolique was like The Haunting and The Innocence. Mm -hmm. Like it yeah. had that kind of like ethereal feel to it. Even though I, I'd, I'd never caught the threat that it might go supernatural. I'm kind of curious where you thought that turn was. So to me, where I think the film was trying to use that as a misdirect was specifically through the use of a creepy portrait that looked just like her and then that being shut away in the attic with all of her aunt's things. And then every time she thought she was alone in the house, things that like, you know, a, the new picture that her husband got was moved maybe mm -hmm. by her aunt's ghost. Maybe what was stomping around up there in the attic was her aunt among all of her possessions trapped in the attic because that was where all of her things were sometimes. You know, I would think that the audience who saw this for the first time would based on their knowledge of how like these gothic horror films went that either it was going to be her aunt's ghost or it was a total jane Eyre situation where it's her husband's <laughs> first wife yeah. you know like those are the conventions that it's working within and then it turns out to be something 
similar but different is like a big like part of it. Mm-hmm. It's smart that it plays it both ways. Like I, I do I do struggle now to like put myself in the mindset of someone seeing this for the first time back then. Um like I, I struggle with like imagining not knowing that the husband is the villain because it's like so upfront. Yeah. But I think the movie gets away with like still having ghosts in it in a way. Like mm-hmm. this is actually how I think of ghosts is like it's... when you're gone, your effect on the world kind of lingers and like the space you were in, you know, kind of that like Tony Morrison idea that like something that has happened in a place like always happens there, you know, like think like events and people just kind of yeah. linger in spaces, like, especially that kind of like ghostly being effect like, in the world. This is the room it happened in that window. That's where it yeah. happened. Um, but yeah, no, that's totally how I feel about ghosts as well. Um, as much as I, I wish we could have actual specters, it doesn't fit in with the rest of my belief system. But the idea of like right, the right. memories <laughs> that you carry and you know the stories and that sort of effect and people being surrounded by your objects, like that's very much a haunting. Yeah, exactly. She's literally going back to the space. And through her DNA, like her, her niece looks exactly like her and yeah. is a very similar personality from what we can tell. So, like, she's still there, you know, even though, like, she doesn't float around under a sheet. So it gets to play both sides, I think. Um, I, maybe yeah. this is, like, the one exception to my usual rule where, like, I don't wish that this did go supernatural, where usually that's what I would be pushing for. And I, I think what we're realizing is that this movie does that thing I like. Yeah. I, apparently that works for me sometimes. So, obviously, I knew the term gaslight. But I watched this movie without knowing it's where the term came from. So I wow. actually did go into okay. this movie my first watch. Not this watch, but this was the rewatch. My first watch, I actually did go into this movie not knowing what to expect. And yeah, like creepy bumping around in the attic, you know, you still already suspect the husband and you're already like, this guy's up to no good. Right. But, yeah, the creepy bumping around the attic definitely feels like very haunting and like spooky, especially since you know you empathize so much with her character that it's driving her mad. You know it. Yet at the same time, you're like, oh my god, what is that going on? Like, no one's going to believe her. So yeah, it's it's still very spooky. In case y'all wanted the impression of someone who is going in with nothing. The one thing um, I did not catch on at first was like why he was in the attic. I thought right. he was just mm-hmm. up there to make her mad like i didn't think yes, he had a purpose exactly up there. yeah that's yeah. what i thought too first it's funny because knowing what you know about this movie or knowing what what i knew but that it was where gaslighting came from as a term and it was about a man driving his wife insane i had no idea what the reason for it was going to be i was genuinely surprised by what the plot actually was Jewel that it revolved heist. around him looking for the jewels like that that somehow had completely failed to penetrate through like yeah. pop cultural osmosis and i was very excited yeah about i it. thought you know the first time around and even this time around before i remembered uh that it was just is just an obsessive fan that letter read very like oh i yeah. missed yeah. you i tried to see you you know but then again he also still kind of does come across as an obsessive fan that just is like taking these jewels for like revenge he still is just like those jewels i need them him talking about the crown jewels i was just like oh it's a jewel heist <laughs> it's a jewel heist 
It honestly seems like a job for Jessica Fletcher. She could have wrapped this up in 40 minutes. She could yeah. have. I love the idea of famous jewels. I love how much he couldn't control how horny he was for jewels when they went and saw the yes. crown jewels. Very Batman villain. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if y'all watch um, What We Do in the Shadows. Yes. Yeah. You know, this season when the creature that crawled out of Colin Robinson going through the very annoying stages of like childhood. Uh -huh. <laughs> where they go on and on about things like Bionicle. That was like him with those jewels. Yes. Like, these jewels, they came from this place and they're for this purpose. He was just like, oh man, kind of sounds like you want to fuck those jewels. And also, the fact that there are jewels that are too famous to sell, I find very funny. Like, oh, he couldn't have just stolen the jewels. They would have turned up. He couldn't simply sell them. They're simply too famous. Famous jewels as a as a concept to me is very funny. I don't know why. Well, this is currently streaming on HBO Max. Looks great on there. It does really crisp. It does. I was surprised by the um, lack of like letterboxing, or I guess whatever the opposite of letterboxing is. I didn't realize it was in this aspect ratio. Oh, I thought it was letterboxed on the left and right. Yeah, that's what I mean. But it's it's like formatted in its original version to fit like old TVs, which I found surprising. Yeah, it's probably more of like an academy ratio where it's like more squared off than widescreen. I think that's like a, I think that's a more traditional format. I think later when they had those like super widescreen like cinemascope style formats, that was like more to bring people back to the theater, like kind of like uh, mm. when television was invented. That that's the same way like James Cameron like reinventing 3D technology to like save theaters in the age of the internet those super widescreen cinemascope thing came a little later it's like well you can't see this at home you can't see this like wide vista uh, and then later they just chopped those movies to shit and like just showed you a third of the screen yeah <laughs> like i'll show you <laughs> yeah i i guess i, I just looked it up this is in 4.3 or yeah. 1.371 just like casablanca but i guess i just always assumed that it would be wider in scope, but I guess it is prior to the fifties where that became more common. So you're right. God, I hate paying attention to aspect ratio. Like I feel like such an idiot when I go to the theater and like they didn't even move the curtain to like match the aspect ratio. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's not even filling the whole screen. Like I wish I could just turn my brain off sometimes. Yeah. It just took me by surprise this time. No, I no, guess, I guess, you know, yeah. Yeah. That that just felt like a very traditional style to me, um, which really points to how like early the movie was. Like 40s was a long time ago <laughs> so, yeah it still feels sharp and relevant like we said like there's nothing really new about the character dynamics here it, it just really drills into like the ugliest parts of them in the way that makes it like feel continually relevant but that atmosphere looks really good like that fog in hd oh, like so good i think you're getting a better experience uh, yeah. watching that now than you would have gotten watching a television broadcast you know in the 50s or 60s a lot of detail in there Next week on the show, we're moving away from horror for a minute. Um, we're going to talk about Twee, which was something I suggested because a lot of my favorite movies from this year have like felt like they've been throwing back to this like aughts era Twee aesthetic in a way that's been surprising to me. I'm particularly thinking of Everything Everywhere All at Once and Strawberry Mansion, Marcel the Shell. I've been seeing a lot of throwbacks to the kind of art I really appreciated when like I was in college and Wes Anderson and Miranda July and Michelle Gondry were running the scene, you know? <laughs> so I'm making 
James, Hannah, and Brittany return to the 2000s twee era with me. Um, and I also made them watch a movie from 2015 called Girl Asleep, which I felt like was another throwback to that time. It was also just nice after Halloween, like cramming in tons and tons of horror movies and then jumping right into Film Fest. Uh, we're watching a bunch of movies I've already seen before, and uh, Girl Asleep is like only in an hour. <laughs> so this is also me taking it a little easy. Uh, probably, you know.